Thanks, Derwin. Am I on? I think I'm on. There we go. Perfect. Uh, good morning, friends. It is really good to be here with you. Thank you, Derwin, for inviting me and for that, um, uh, that introduction. My, my title at Jacob's Well is, is very vaunted. It's uh, the resident theologian, which just means I'm first with the mop into the bathroom when things go bad. Um, it's... Uh, I, I, I'm not just here on my own recognizance is kind of what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm here representing a lot of people in the downtown east side. Uh, my own community, I live in a community house with uh, 13 people, so that's my family and a couple other families and other people, and a cat named Sophie and a dog named uh, Darth, no, a dog named Chewy, Chewbarka. I call my cat Darth Meow when she kills rats, which is really good, but a uh, dog named Chewbarka. And, uh, and I come f uh, representing Jacob's Well as well, which is a, a beautiful little community. Um, we call it like a community living room. It's not a church, but it is faith-based. We have a prayer room. We do a Bible study on Thursday nights where there's now 20 people, many of them just full-on crazy and fun, and we have a really great time together. It's some of the funniest times of my week is getting to be with them and really exploring scripture. And what we do there is we look at a scripture passage one week, we exegete it really, um, you know, seriously, and then the next week we'll look at it again and say, what does this compel us to do? And we come up with a plan of what we need to do as a result of the scripture we've read. And then the third week we will go and we'll do it. We'll practice it. And then the fourth week we'll come back, we'll read it again, and we'll go, how did that go? Um, was that right? Was that the right application for us here and now in this place? And uh, it's just a beautiful space where we get to do that kind of thing. Um, and I come obviously representing 24-7 prayer as well. I've been involved in that since its beginning back in 99. Um, just trying to cause, trying to pray and to cause people to pray. When we began, we said we're a prayer movement for people who aren't very good at prayer. And that was our tagline for a long, long time. And now we said, well, after 22 years, We've learned something about prayer, so we're, we're a prayer movement for people who have learned something about prayer, and we long to, to help people learn more and more about prayer. Um, and that's what we're talking about today, is prayer, uh, in a couple different ways. What I'd love for us to do right at the beginning um, is, is to acknowledge we've worshipped and we've done some, you know, examination of scripture, but I know, I know how we are, I know how humans are, I know how I am, that we are all carrying things with us. And there's been a lot of stuff, I'm sure, personally for you in this past week that you are wanting to attend to, that your mind, your heart is wanting to attend to, that you need to attend to, and, and those things are good and right. We're not saying they don't matter. Uh, they do matter. But they matter in, in the right order. Um, there's a lot of things in the world right now that are just crazy, right? You know, just so much... Uh, stuff that we feel really powerless about, stuff that we're really concerned about, stuff that we are lamenting and weeping over and getting angry about, those things are very, very real. And we're going to address those things, but can we begin, actually take out your pen, I know you all got pens, can you just write down some of that stuff? This is what I do actually at the beginning of many of my prayer times, is I will write down what is foremost, what is right at the front of my mind, or sitting heavily in my heart, just so I can write them down. So I know they're there, I haven't forgotten them. I'm just giving them right now. I'm putting them aside for right now and trusting the Lord with those things so that if he asks me to pick them back up again, I, they're there. I've not forgotten. I just want to get the order right.
And one of the reasons I do this is because when I describe um, what I do and, and where I live, I do live in the downtown east side, been there for the last 18 years. Um, when we describe our ministry, people will often ask us or go, oh, well, that's really interesting how you minister to the poor. And I will often say, no, we don't minister to the poor. That's not what we do. We minister to the Lord. And then people will go, oh, don't you care about the poor? It's a really weird shift. So don't you care about the poor? And I go, oh, don't you know the Lord? Because the Lord cares about the poor. I can trust the Lord with all those concerns. I can trust with my family that God is, is far more uh, interested and compassionate and, and knowledgeable about how to care for my family than I am. As much as I love my family, I know the Lord loves them more. And so I can trust the Lord with these things, knowing that, that if I am in, in the right order, if I am focused correctly, if I am rooted in the right place, then these things will also um, be happening. These things will also be in my hands correctly, not incorrectly. Because I do get asked an awful lot as a prayer person, um, does prayer work? Has anyone ever asked you that question? You ever asked that question? Does prayer really work? Probably coming up a lot these days, you know. Does, does prayer really work? Is there any point to this? Why are we doing, why are we praying about these situations? Does it, does it really, really work? Does prayer really work? And I say it depends very much on what we mean by the word work. Do we get everything we want or ask for? Have you got everything you've ever prayed for? Anybody? If, if there's anybody here who did, then we want to gather around you and <laughs> start handing you some slips of paper with our prayer requests. Do we get everything that we ask for? No, we don't. But is that the point and purpose of prayer, to get everything that we want or ask for? Is that what it means for prayer to work? I think there's an even bigger question. Is this the point and the purpose of us? I think we don't ask that question enough. Is that the point and purpose of us? C.S. Lewis, when he was talking about prayer, said that the first phrase of every prayer time should always be, may it be the real me who prays and the real thou to whom I pray. Let's get that right. May it be the real me who prays and the real thou to whom I pray. I do a lot of work with guys who are in addictions recovery. And uh, their language tends to be, uh, let's use a church word, salty. Their language is salty or, or uh, earthy, right? And, um, and, but what's really weird what happens is when we start to get into to prayer, some of them are, are, think that their language is just, just like totally inappropriate. They can't pray, and so they'll be really, really quiet. They, they won't pray. Or others who maybe have had a little bit of religious background will, will start to adopt this real religious language when they start to pray. It's fascinating. They talk one way, and then they start to pray, and it's all these and thous. It's very weird. And, and so often what I'll say to, to my guys is, hey, if your language is filled with swear words, and this may offend you, I don't know, and I don't particularly care. Uh, if your language is filled with swear words, then probably, at least for now, your prayer life should be as well. And that's not to say that that might not change at some point, but I just want you to be who you are. And I don't think God's upset about that. I think if that's the way that you communicate, that might be the way that you need to communicate with God now, and he's not going to be offended by that. Now, I'm not saying that you should all adopt swear words in your prayers. 
Um, but I think that you should be authentic. I think that you should be really who you are as you come before God. And that we're seeking an authentic encounter with the real God. And that's actually a frightening thing. What is the first words, the first phrase that any angel utters when they show up in Scripture? <coughs> Don't be afraid. Which suggests to me that there may be scary. <laughs> and when they show up, everyone is just kind of losing their mind because they are scary. It's this divine thing. I and mean, when we see encounters in Scripture with the divine, I mean, and it's sometimes ambiguous as, is this an angel? Is this God? What's going on here? But when... When, when we see Isaiah in, in the temple, right, that's a terrifying thing. He recognizes who he is. He knows he's standing in the presence of the train of the, of the Lord's robe fills the temple. And he goes, woe unto me, for I am a sinful man. I'm unclean, and I'm an unclean people. And then a giant angel starts flying towards him with a flaming coal. That's a scary encounter. And I don't know how much we actually anticipate encountering God when we pray or when we come to worship or when we, we, we go to church. I mean, I, I love the story at the beginning of the story of Jesus with Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He's a priest and he's ministering in the temple. It's his turn. And he shows up in the temple and he's doing all the stuff, doing all the prayers. And then the, 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 the angel shows up and he goes, whoa, I did not anticipate that. But what was he expecting? When we come to worship the Lord, when we come to pray, what are we expecting? Are we genuinely expecting an authentic encounter with the Lord? And I just want to ask that question, you know, not first who is the Lord, we're going to get there, but who are we and what were we made for? We're going to get there in just a second because we're going to be talking about the essential interconnection between things like prayer and mission and justice. And how our relationship with God leads us radically and beautifully into those places. But first, we really need to go back to the beginning. We need to get the order right. Right now, the beginning here is about how we abide in prayer. Who we are and who the Lord is. This is the starting and the ending point in prayer. Who are we? Who is the Lord? And a lot of our prayer lives, if we're honest, tend to be about uh, intercession right? Like when we have a prayer meeting, what is the first thing? We ask, what do we need prayer for? And people will, and quite rightly, people will, I, I, I have a, an, an issue here. There's sickness, there's financial issue, there's stuff going on in the world, and we are interceding, and we are meant to intercede. That's part of prayer. But, uh, or, or maybe we're lamenting. Maybe we're saying this is, that's maybe something we're growing and learning how to do is to properly lament and, and to say there's, there's stuff that's not right with the world. Or sometimes in some congregations and groups, it'll be spiritual warfare. It'll be storming the gates of heaven, you know, and just bringing heaven down on earth, that kind of thing. And that's all great. That's all part of prayer. But will that kind of prayer exist in glory? What will we be interceding for? What will we be lamenting? What will we be doing spiritual warfare around? You know, that's that in glory or, or even before the fall. Like that kind of stuff didn't exist. That didn't exist in the garden, won't be there in glory. So actually, it's good for us to practice this other kind of prayer, which is abiding, being with God. That would be a really good thing to start practicing here and now because that's what we're going to be spending an awful lot of time doing. I just want you to think for a second, what were you made 
four. And again, try not to be super, super pious unless you're just authentically super, super pious. <laughs> Maybe. But just, and just think for a second, like, what, what was I made for? What is my purpose? What was I made for? And just share it with the person sitting beside you right now. What, what do you think you were made for? Don't look at the notes. <laughs> what were you made for? And share it with the person beside you. All right, any, any thoughts? What were we made for? What were you made for? Yeah. To teach. To teach. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing to know, isn't it? Are you a teacher? Well, that's helpful then. That's great. Yeah, I was made to teach. Great. What else? To worship. Yeah. What else? To help make the world a better place right in your sphere of influence, right where you are. Yeah. Anything else? To be a mom. To be a mom. Yeah. And you are a mom? Yeah. There we go. That's, again, it's really handy when you actually get to do the thing that you were made to do. <coughs> we all, all of us, get to do, can do, the thing that we were made to do, ultimately. And, and there's a primary thing that we're made for, and then there's all kinds of things that flow out of that. And I want to talk first about the primary thing that we were made for, I believe. And this goes right back to the very beginning in, in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made in the image of God, and we were made to be in friendship with God. That's why God makes us, to be in friendship with Him. And one of the reasons we know this, that this is what we were made for, is because when things go wrong, the first and primary thing that is broken is this intimate friendship with God. We read this in, in Genesis 3, in the story of the fall, Genesis 3, 8 to 10, that the thing that is broken is this fellowship with God, right? And then that brokenness of fellowship with God, of intimate friendship with God, of walking with God in the cool of the day, that brokenness leads to the breaking of all other relationships as well. You see the brokenness between man and woman. You see the brokenness between humanity and creation. You see the brokenness even between us and our own bodies. There is a brokenness that happens as a result of this fundamental primary brokenness. And the rest of Scripture really could be described as God restoring this relationship. 
to an even greater fullness, even beyond the original intent and purpose. It's, it's better than the garden. What God is planning, what God is working in us is better than that. But it does need to be restored, and it is being restored. God is reconciling his beloved creation to himself. And incredibly, and this I find absolutely amazing, I, 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 when, I, when I meditate on this, I can't quite grasp it yet, but this reconciliation that God is working out, it blesses us. It very clearly blesses us. But it also blesses the Lord. Being reconciled to the Lord blesses the Lord. That's why in, in the Psalms it always says, bless the Lord. Like we are blessing the Lord. Our, our receiving the invitation that the Lord has for us blesses the Lord. The Lord likes it. This is, the Lord wants this. Yahweh wants us to come back. And, and sometimes we have this image of God that, that he's just putting up with us. Like he's just barely tolerating us. I mean, tolerance, I know it's, it's an it's a in vogue word right now, and I understand the reasons for it, and it can be really, really good. But, but I know I tolerated my little brother. You probably have people in your life that you tolerate. And, and tolerance is better than active hostility, right? Sometimes I act, was actively hostile towards my little brother, for sure. But I tolerate, at the best, I tolerated him. I don't want to be just tolerated by God. I want to be loved. I want to be welcomed. I want to be invited. I want to be brought right into the center. Of, and, and that actually is the picture that God has, the, the picture that Scripture gives us, is that God's like, I'm not just going to tolerate. I don't actually want to just tolerate you. I, I want to draw you in. I want you as close as you can possibly be. There's a very, very weird scripture. There's lots of scriptures that, if we're honest, they're weird. We don't get them. It's not because scripture's wrong. It's because we don't quite understand them. But there's lots of stuff in there that we don't fully understand. Can we be honest about that? There's a strange story in Exodus 24 where the Lord says to Moses, Come up to the Lord you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. That's how it starts. It says, come up to the Lord. Now, they have already come out of Egypt. You know, they've already crossed the sea. They're, they're sort of not yet in the wilderness. But all that they've seen of God so far, Moses has had a bit more interaction with God. But the rest of Israel, all they've seen of God are the ten signs, as they would call it. The Egyptians called them the ten plagues. Israel called them the ten signs. And then they saw the, the fire and the smoke and, and the, the parting of the sea. So that's what they've seen of God. And then they show up at this mountain and, and then there's thunder and lightning and earthquakes and smoke on the mountain. And then God says to them, now come on up. Now how would you feel about that? <laughs> they, they, they weren't that thrilled. They weren't that thrilled about this idea. It scared them. God was on the mountain, and, and they didn't really want to go there. They didn't feel exactly confident approaching God on this holy mountain. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever said to yourself, I don't deserve to pray? You felt, I do not deserve to come into the presence of God. God is too holy, and I am too not holy. And I do not deserve to come into the presence of God. I don't deserve to come close to God. 
So then the story is, well, God has told them to do this, so they've got to do it, but they spend a good portion of this chapter making some pretty serious preparations. They gather all of Israel together, and they read all the law that they have. They read all the scripture that they have, and then they set up some sacrifices, and they, they, they do the sacrifices, and then they throw blood kind of everywhere. You know, they're, they're, all, they're doing like, we're going to protect ourselves as much as possible, <laughs> You know, and, and maybe we do that. Maybe before we come into prayer, we go, to sleep, we go oh, you know, we repent of everything that we can possibly repent of so that we can maybe come before God. I don't know how you are with, like, people operating in the prophetic. Is that something that this church does at all or a little bit, maybe? Um, if you have a real, a person in your life who's, like, really hears from the Lord and they call you up and they want to have coffee, <laughs> you know, don't you spend a bit of time repenting before uh, I got to... <laughs> You know, before you go to that coffee meeting, he's heard something. I don't want to, I just got to sort of, I got to clean the slate before I go and hang out with this person because they're going to, you know, whatever they bring up, go, yeah, I already dealt with that with the Lord. Don't worry about it. We're good. (laughs) They made some serious preparations before they went up on that mountain. And then it says in Exodus 24, 9 to 11, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. That is amazing. They saw God. These are the people who just like days before were wandering and going and complaining and grumbling. Moses, why did you bring us out here to die? Why don't you just leave us in Egypt where at least we had food and whatever. And God is just so gracious with them. He said, come up and you'll eat and drink with me. You'll see me. And it says this weird line, God did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. That means God did not strike them dead. And they thought that was so strange they had to write it down. (laughs) God didn't kill us. They didn't know yet who Yahweh was. They hadn't had that full revelation yet. Not by any means. They were scared, but God brought them up. He says, I want you to come up with me. I'm, I'm giving you a picture of what I want. I want you to be with me. God wants them to be close to him, even though they keep turning and running away. And this is the story, really, of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, maybe shown most starkly in the book of Hosea. You may be familiar with it. Uh, Hosea is this prophet, and God presents himself to Hosea essentially as a spurned but faithful lover who, though wounded, continually woos his beloved back. That that God is, is someone who's married to someone who is just totally unfaithful keeps running away, and God is not happy about it. He doesn't think it's okay, but he is continually wooing Israel back. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us, which if we're paying attention, that that really is clearly looking forward to something that happens in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. This is our purpose. This is what we're made for, is to live in the presence of God. 
Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Come, let us return to the Lord. If you wanted a phrase that poetically sums up the Hebrew scriptures, that's a pretty good one. Come, let us return to the Lord. And God wants this. God wants them to return and to stay. God wants us to return and to stay and to be as close as possible. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is where we're going. This is what everything will be like. What we're doing here and now, as one theologian said, is we are tuning our instruments. We're tuning our instruments for the eternal praise of the Lord. <clears throat> There's something that we used to do in our uh, community in the downtown east side. We were uh, a little bit crazy charismatic, and um, we would, uh, every time someone would start reading out or, or saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, which is sort of, the, as it says in Revelation 4 and 5, this is what the angels are constantly singing. We say, this is what we'll be singing forever. So when someone started doing it, we'd all start going, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we'd say it multiple times just as we were just getting ready, we're preparing for this, and there were sometimes groups of people who would come to visit us, and they thought we were definitely a cult, but we were not a cult. <laughs> we were tuning our instruments uh, to be saying, this is how we will be praising the Lord forever. He is holy, and this will be part of the fulfillment of what we get to do. And sometimes we have this idea that we have to convince God to listen. We have to convince God to like us. We have to convince God by getting the formula right or we have to, attain, have to have attained a certain level of holiness before God will pay attention to us. Has anyone ever had that thought? If I'm not yet holy enough, God is not going to pay attention to me. Well, that's a really hopeless thought. That's a hopeless thought for us, but we can maybe, if we've been in church a lot and we spend a lot of time in church, we can maybe start to fake that enough that we think we're okay. But what about everybody else? All the people, and I can't, I, the number of people who said to this to me, they said, well, I can't come to church, Aaron, because if I walk in those doors, the walls are going to fall down. I'm like, I, the, they never have. <laughs> and you need, and, and we would meet, we met, like now we meet in this place, which, I mean, it looks like a shelter. We used to meet in a place that was a shelter, and people would sleep there overnight. And then they go, well, I can't come for church because the wall, like it didn't fall down last night when you were sleeping here. It's not going to fall down now. But there is this idea that we somehow have propagated that people have believed that unless they have their life right, they can't come to church. They certainly can't come into the presence of God. I remember we, we pray in the park every morning in Oppenheimer Park. And I remember a guy coming by and we had, uh, there was a guy, a friend of mine 
who had been an addict for many, many years, and now he was with us in the park, and he would be the guy who would invite everybody else to come in and pray. And this one person passed, and he, he said, why don't you come and pray with us? And he goes, oh, the only words I'd have to say to God are four-letter words. And my friend goes, well, God will hear those too. Come join us. It's okay. We're not afraid of that. God's not afraid of that. Come, because the Lord actually wants you to come. Holiness matters. It definitely matters. But holiness is the fruit of relationship with God. Okay? It's the fruit of relationship with God. It is not the prerequisite to relationship with God. Again, that's a hopeless formula. Holiness is the fruit of relationship. We become like Christ in Christ. We don't become like Christ somehow on our own and then say, look, God, of this wonderful thing I have to present to you. I somehow managed to become like Christ all on my own. And God goes, wow, well done. What was I even thinking? Why did I, like, no. God knows. He's like, I'm going to make you like Christ. As we grow in friendship with God and fellowship with God and union with God, we will be made holy. We'll become like that which we worship. We become like that we commune with. 2 Peter 1, 3-4, again, one of the strangest passages or one of the most difficult passages for a lot of Christians these days, but it's in the New Testament. Peter writes it. He says, His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. It's by His glory and goodness. Through these, His glory and goodness, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Does that weird you out at all? That you can participate in the divine nature? Doesn't that sound a little dangerous to be talking about? It's in, this, it's in Scripture. Doesn't it sound a little dangerous to say you can participate in the divine nature? Well, hang on a second. I'm not God. Look, we all know that. We're all very aware that we are not God, but God is inviting us so deeply into himself in Christ by his spirit that he says we will participate in the very life of God. That is what we're made for. And so when people say, well, I'm only human, I'm like, you're only human, we're only human. You know what we were made for? It's to be humans in participation with the divine nature. That is amazing. That is astounding. Let's not settle for less than that. That's what we've been promised. That's what Jesus has done. And we sort of settle for just forgiveness of sins. You know, when Peter preaches in the book of Acts after Pentecost, he doesn't just say your sins can be forgiven. He says your sins will be forgiven. This is the gift. You'll have the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? The very presence of God in us, drawing us fully into the life of God. That is amazing. What if our prayer life just reflected that? God, you have brought us in. We, we don't have to do all this work to figure out how to talk to you. You know, it says in another, in, in, in Thessalonians, it says, it's Second Thessalonians, it says, prayer, pray without ceasing. Remember that? Pray without ceasing. Anyone got good at that? Just praying without ceasing? I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm a 24-7 prayer guy, but I got to sleep sometimes. You know, well, actually, we can do that. We can pray without ceasing. First, as the whole body of Christ, 
We've been praying around the world nonstop since 1999, I know for sure, and certainly before that with other communions, but we've been doing that. We've been praying without ceasing. We are all one. That's how it says in John 17, we're one. So we are praying without ceasing, but also I had this revelation that if the Holy Spirit is living in me, and if I am in Christ, the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father are always talking to each other. Always. They never stop. They have never stopped talking to each other. They will never stop talking to each other. They are talking to each other right now. They are in communion with one another, and that is happening in and through me. And sometimes I consciously join in. And the more I do that, the better it is for me. But it's always happening. We are, you know, the, the, the idea of the temple or the tabernacle where the presence of God is, we sometimes still think that's church. It is, but not the building. It's us. We are the very temple of God, where the very presence of God dwells. That's who we are. That's the encounter. So does prayer work? My response to that is prayer works every single time that I come genuinely seeking the Lord. I don't always get an answer, but I always get an audience. I always get an audience because in prayer I am living out my created purpose, what God wills and wants for me. So the first part of abiding prayer, learning to abide in prayer, is trusting that God wants this for me and learning to receive his love and his invitation to come return to him. And what stops that? What stops us from doing that? Partly a, a sense of our own guilt, sense of, of shame, but where, where a lot of that comes from is a misunderstanding or a strange or wrong image of who God is. You know, when Jesus talks about God, he talks about a good father, a very good father. And again, I, I, I don't know what people's situation is here like. I don't know what your history is like. When I talk to guys in the downtown east side about God as father, that's a very difficult uh, title for a lot of guys, for a lot of people, just in general. Because they say, well, I don't want anything to do with a God who is like my father. I don't want anything to do with a God who is abusive. I don't want anything to do with a God who is a perfectionist. I don't want anything to do with a God who is absent. I don't want anything to do with that kind of God. And I go, well, let's talk about what a good father is. We all do have a sense of what that is. And that's why Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Say, Father. And he gives examples and parables of what a good father is like. A good father is one who provides. A good father is one who, certainly even in the history of Israel, was the one who carried them, was one who protects, was the one who is actually approachable. But it's also, and we're going to talk about this in, in the next session, it's not just a story of family. A good father is one who shows you how to live, shows you how to work, shows you what to do, and then you follow in your father's footsteps. That's what we're going to talk about next. But we start from this place of identity, who we are. And again, one of my favorite stories, I mean, it's probably all of our favorite story in some ways, Jesus' baptism, when John baptizes Jesus, right? 
and the, the voice from heaven, this happens twice actually for Jesus, which is beautiful. The voice from heaven speaks, the, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, lands on Jesus as he is being baptized and says this, this in his best Mufasa voice, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, or Darth Vader maybe. But, but it's this beautiful, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And immediately after that, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus, it says, out into the wilderness to be tested. And the test is the Satan coming to Jesus and saying, well, if, if you are the Son of God. And that is still the big test for us. That is still the big temptation. That is still the work of the accuser saying, well, if, if you are really children of the Father. We are. That's our identity. That's the source of any power we might have is that we are children of the Father whom the Father wants to be with him in his presence. And so what do we do? How do we live that out? This is the word abiding. My, my favorite thing that my kids do is just come in and hang out with me. One of my, my, my sons, Noah, He's really, he's 17 now, and you don't think a lot of 17-year-old uh, boys are very huggy. They don't tend to be huggy. They tend to be, oh, get away, Dad. You know, but my, my boy loves hugs. And three or four times a day, he'll just come up. He'll come into my room and just want to give a hug. And it's one of my favorite things. He just wants to come and be with me in my presence. And when I say to my daughter, hey, can we just go and get coffee? She's like, yeah, I just want to go and be with you. They just want to be with us still. And that's my favorite thing about being a father with my kids. And can you imagine, this is how we bless the Lord. He's like, I just want you to be with me, and I've made it possible for that to happen. I want you to abide. I want you to spend time with me. Abiding, the, 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 I mean, have it, when you go home later, have a read through John 14 to 17. Really, have a read through this. It's called the Farewell Discourse. This is in, in the book, the Gospel of John. This is Jesus' last real teaching to his disciples, some of his last teaching, and it's all about abiding. I want you to come and be with me where I am. I'm going to my Father's house. I'm making a room for you, and I want you to come and hang out there. You know, somebody was asking me a question like uh, this week, one of my guys at Jacob's Well says, when we get to heaven, do we all get mansions? Is that what we get? Because he'd heard some prosperity gospel stuff that we all get mansions and jewels and stuff. And I'm like, oh man, okay. Um, that stuff plays really well amongst the poor, by the way, and we need to stop it. <laughs> um, and I said, no, actually, we don't all get mansions. We all live in one mansion. <laughs> Jesus said he's going to his father's house and he's making rooms for us. It's a co-living situation. We don't get our own little houses. That sounds more like hell. We all get our own little houses and we all spread apart from each other, don't have anything to do with each other. That's, an, we all build our fences and our, you know, we want the corner lot with the, the big, uh, you know, uh, ferns and stuff around so we don't have to deal with anybody. That's not the picture of glory. It's actually, he's, he, the father has a huge house. We all live together. We probably all come together for meals is my expectation. Right? The, the Father, actually, this is my children, and I want you to be together with me. I want you to abide. I want you to spend time and start practicing now. Abide with me. Come and be with me. It's learning to abide in, in God through Christ. 
And Jesus invites his followers not into a life of mission and striving. Mission happens, but we need to get the order right. Intercession, spiritual warfare, that all happens. We're, all, we're called to do that, but that's not the starting point. The starting point is that we are called into relationship with the Father and the promised Holy Spirit. This is the place of peace instead of fear. This is the place of security instead of insecurity. The place of hope instead of despair, of abundance as opposed to scarcity, of life instead of death. I have a friend who talks about the orphaned life versus the parented life. And the orphaned worldview, which a lot of us have, is one of, no one has named me, nobody has claimed me, I don't know if there will be enough, and so everybody else is actually a competition for whatever scarce resources exist. The parented life is someone has named me, someone has wanted me, someone has claimed me, and everybody else can actually be playmates. They can be brothers and sisters because there's enough. And I want to suggest a lot of even ministries have a very orphaned worldview. We all need to grab what we can. And God is inviting us into a very different relationship with him. We are his children. He wants us there, and there is enough. There is sufficiency. I think that's where, is that, that's about time for this morning, yes. Yeah, so we're going to break up into some groups and just ask some questions and pray for each other. Um, and there's a little bit of guidance in here, and I think you're going to have some groups that will help you do that. Um, Really focus in not on what we're called to do, but who we have been made to be in this time. Okay?